This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. The blockbuster book trilogy The Hunger Games spawned four hit films. Now a prequel book called The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes has been adapted into a new movie. Prequels can be a mixed bag, so is this one any good? It follows the early life of the man who would one day become the evil President Snow and the singer who becomes his mentee. I'm Stephen Thompson, and today we are talking about The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining me today is NPR producer J.C. Howard. Hey there, J.C. Hello, hello, Stephen. Also with us, co-host of Slate's ICYMI podcast and former PCHH producer, Candace Lim. Welcome back, Candace. Hi, guys. Woo-woo. It's so good to see you. So The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is set 64 years before the events that take place in the first Hunger Games book and movie. Coriolanus Snow, played by Tom Blythe, is one of a group of students enlisted to mentor tributes at the 10th annual Hunger Games. The mentors are told that only one of them will receive a prestigious scholarship, an award sponsored by the rich family of his friend Sejanus. Sejanus is played by Josh Andres Rivera. Coriolanus needs the scholarship to reverse his family's fading fortunes. His mentee is also an underdog. She's a singer named Lucy Gray Baird, played by Rachel Zegler. She's chosen to represent District 12. That's the poverty-stricken coal mining district that would one day give us Katniss Everdeen. Lucy Gray and Coriolanus have a mutual interest in her survival, and they strike up a friendship as he attempts to keep her alive in the Hunger Games. But her fate is complicated by forces working against her. These obviously include the other tributes competing in the games, but they also include the wicked gamesmaker Dr. Gall, <laughs> played by Viola Davis, as well as Coriolanus's cruel Dean, played by Peter Dinklage. The story gets more complicated from there, but you basically have two movies in one. There's a Hunger Games competition, and then there's the stuff that gives you a sense of why and how Coriolanus Snow became a a ruthless villain who will one day be portrayed by Donald Sutherland. The Hunger Games, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes was directed by Francis Lawrence, who directed three previous films in the Hunger Games franchise, and it was based on the best-selling novel by Suzanne Collins. The film is in theaters now. J.C. Howard, I'm going to start with you. What did you think of The Hunger Games, colon, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes? Uh, first of all, great uh, pithy title, just nice and concise. <laughs> Um, Rolls off the tongue. Yeah, exactly. Um, let me start by saying that I devoured this book back in 2020. <laughs> a huge fan. Came out in the middle of COVID and I loved it. And my first reaction when I finished the book was that I hope it never becomes a movie mm. because I thought that it would make a much better television series, oh, which is not to say that I didn't enjoy the movie because I absolutely loved it. Ah. I just think that it would have been better served with a little bit more room to breathe. So, you know, get into the backstory of the Covey, this group that Lucy Gray comes from. Like a, like a singing group. Yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. It's a singing group. It's a group of traveling nomads. Right. And like getting into their backstory, I think, could have been really interesting, um, as well as like establishing the deep relationship between Sejanus and Coriolan 
anus as that kind of develops and, um, you know, maybe a little bit more on the Mockingjays. I've, I've always been kind of curious about them, but I thought that this was a magnificent companion piece to the book. But without the book, it's a compelling movie, but it might ring a little bit more hollow if you don't have the book as kind of that foundation, yeah. which is honestly exactly how I felt about the original series, mm-hmm. which kind of makes me think, can Suzanne Collins's books be adapted? Mm. You read the book and there's so much internal work. You get so much of the inner working of the characters. Like mm. in the book, Coriolanus is incredibly duplicitous, right? He's like a master manipulator in some way. And he's not admirable. Um, but in the movie, he's more of a straightforward, tragic hero. I will say that I, I did love the movie as a companion to the book, but I'd much rather have seen it as like a full series. I would have loved that, but I love the movie. All right. How about you, Candace? I'm with you, JC, because I like the movie, especially the first half. And yeah. I am someone who read the books and watched all the movies. And I really like the way they brought this world to life, especially because mm-hmm. the 10th Hunger Games looks so different yeah. from the 74th where Katniss comes to be. Yeah. They look jank. They look like an early season of Survivor or something. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the thing is, I really like the way the story tells you how the Hunger Games evolved. And I really feel like... It makes me think about the first movie differently. It makes me feel mm. like that first movie is about the bravoification of like post-war <laughs> trauma by way of punishing the districts. And the way that Andy Cohen has changed all of our lives. Yeah. Andy Cohen is our Coriolanus Snow. No, he's 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 our Caesar Flickerman. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And JC is right, because as someone who read the book before the movie came out, I really feel like it benefited from that because there's just so much nuance and context and reading between the lines that I think you would need to do in order to fully understand this movie and be present and understand the little Easter eggs and all of that. And the thing is, I was really excited about this movie. (laughs) I think they biffed the third act. And what I mean by that is I think they set up the stakes incorrectly, especially with Sejanus. I think Mm -hmm. the way that they kind of end... Corio's character arc here is also not the way I saw him in the book. And so it was just kind of interesting to see the way that this movie skipped over a lot of stuff that I actually thought was quite important in understanding why you should be emotionally invested in Corio. Also, my favorite character from the book was Sejanus. And I think they biffed him mm, wrong because yeah. they did not set up his stakes correctly. Mm. Lastly, I just have to say the one thing I really hate is that they made Corio hot. Because not me. <laughs> Falling for a war criminal, especially when he enters his buzz-cut American Apparel model era. Like, I am suffering yeah. in this AMC. <laughs> wow. But on balance, you liked it. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make that clear, because it sounds yeah. like, like you're very enthusiastic. I know. It's so tricky with these things sometimes. When you have reservations about yeah. something that you hugely enjoy, it can sound like you're dumping on it, when in fact, you're like, I highly recommend it with the following caveats. Yes, I highly recommend this movie with the following caveats. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It is two hours and 37 minutes long. And I have to say, Candace, you talk about like they biffed the third act. I would have structured this not necessarily as a TV series, though I'm, I'm here for it. I would have structured this as a Mockingjay-style two-parter because Mm. the Hunger Games portion of this movie is so good. And I just sat there thinking, like, questioning my previously held belief about the pointlessness of prequels. I'm Mm. sitting there thinking, do Mm. I like prequels now? (laughs) 
<laughs> because this is making me want to yeah. go back and reread the books. This is making me want to go back and watch all the Katniss Everdeen movies. I loved the first roughly 90 minutes of this film. Mm-hmm. And then they tack on another movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I'm just sitting there like, this is all the stuff I don't like about prequels. Yeah. This is all the like, we have to check this box and this box and this box and this box. And this is where this comes from. And this is how this guy got to have this thing about him and that stuff if they had had an opportunity to flesh it out into its own movie i think i would have found it more compelling but for me this was like a really great movie with a lesser movie tacked on as a coda Hmm. i found that really frustrating a lot less of this would have been better or a lot more of it like you know either let it breathe or or cut it into two parts and just let it let it do its thing kind of uh as standalone movies 90 minutes in i was like all right let's bring this baby in for a landing i loved it yeah it just kept going and going i mean i will say also (laughs) this was a better story, I think, than the original series, which I think might be kind of contributing to uh, your feeling there, Stephen. Mm. I, I mean, like, Hunger Games is focused a lot more on cruelty and rebellion, and that's a fine story, but this is a story more about human nature. You know what's going to happen to him. You see where this is going, but you really want to know what's going to push him over the edge to some degree. I mean, it feels like in the first series, right? In Hunger Games, we were all thrown into the arena just with Katniss, right? We were just like, we were all thrown into it. And this was, it gives you like that more steady climb to get there. Yeah. What I really liked about this movie is that it's really interesting to see the way that the Hunger Games has evolved. So for example, this is the 10th Hunger Games in this movie. They they shepherd in their tributes in cattle cars. They put them in a zoo enclosure. They don't (laughs) feed them and they look super dusty when they get into the arena, which is like very Greek style Olympic Thick, right. fight with woods and ladders. It is really interesting to see the machinations that happened within a young Snow's mind to be like, I think we can make this like a reality show. Mm-hmm. I think we can bring them in on high speed bullet trains. We can dress them up. Their mentors actually are with them from day one. And the reason why is because in this movie, not all of the tributes end up making it into the arena alive, which is so fascinating just to see the way that this person has created this whole thing. But I will say, you know, the first film I feel like is an extremely apt allegory hmm. for hmm. literally influencer culture and reality TV. Oh, yeah. I remember watching the first film and being like, oh, The Hunger Games is basically Love Island Times Survivor Times BravoCon. It is about yeah, right. getting sponsors and it's about basically PR relationships and just the normalization mm. of publicly enjoyed violence, which some may say is Love Island. <laughs> it's just interesting to watch this movie where you kind of see the crumbs of how triggered Snow was by Katniss. One of the small ways is just that Snow is in a somewhat love triangle in this movie. It's not exactly a fully closed triangle. It's a little bit mm-hmm, linear. Mm-hmm. Who else is in a love triangle? Miss Katniss. <laughs> and so, of course, he's like, oop, not in my watch. I just think it's so interesting the way that history has haunted Snow. The fact that Lucy Baird, sorry, Lucy Gray Baird. Lucy Gray, that's right. Lucy Gray yeah. is from District 12. So was Katniss. I mean, there's just so much apt crumbs that make me think of the franchise in this bigger way. I like that part. It does what prequels are supposed to do, which is give you a sense of how it has the audience filling in blanks of like, how did we get 
you know, from point A to point Z. And I think the de-evolution of the Hunger Games is one of the most interesting things about those first 90 minutes, is you get to piece together how they become more glossy, how they become more packaged, how they've done, there are 64 more iterations where they've managed to work out and work in kinks. Yeah, That part is so cool. I gotta say, the first 90 minutes of this movie, I love so much. And one of the things I love about this movie, both those lead performances are terrific. I think Tom Blythe is, part of it is you're seeing how Tom Blythe goes from an Abercrombie model to to (laughs) Donald Sutherland. And and part of it is like you're using the skill set that Rachel Zegler brings. You're bringing out her musical chops, her singing ability. They make her a country singer. You get a sense of the breadth of her talent between this and West Side Story. Mm -hmm. We are definitely going to have to talk about some of the very chewy supporting performances in this film. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I thought Tom Blythe was great. Um, He had a lot to do. He's a lead in the movie. But I do think a lot of people will be talking more about some of the other folks, even though he's the lead. I want to make some commotion because I was like, (laughs) I was skeptical about this being a movie to begin with. But then when I saw the cast, I was like, this this could actually be amazing. I I reread the book um, in preparation for seeing the movie and the entire time. I was rereading it. I imagined Hunter Schaefer mm-hmm. as Tigress because I thought that that was the perfect casting. But I wish they had given her more. Yeah. Right? Like, I feel like Hunter was very underutilized in this film. It's like, Yeah, she's so good. She's so good. And, like, just they gave her crumbs, which were all eaten by Viola Davis. <laughs> um, she ate every last crumb. She was an amazing Dr. Gall. I thought Peter Dinklage as uh, Dean Highbottom mm. was spot on. Mm-hmm. As we've we've mentioned, the Flickermans, uh, uh, you know, Lucky, so Jason Schwartzman Perfect as Lucky casting. Flickerman was so a good. bright spot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think we do need to talk about Rachel Zegler. Yes, let's do it. Because I wanted one thing from Lucy Gray and one thing alone, I wanted her to be a charming Southern belle. Mm. And Zegler brought that and more. Uh, but my question is, did we need the more that she brought? <laughs> Lucy Gray is is this like kind of Dolly Parton, Loretta Lynn type character in a 16-year-old body. And I think Zegler did that. But she also brought this edge, this like kind of dark nature, this like cynicism to it. I'm just not sure about it. I mean... Candice, you read the book. Like, how did Lucy Gray strike you in the book versus Rachel Zegler? Okay. Let me start off by saying that I think that all the tributes were playing Survivor. Lucy Gray was playing American Idol. Let me start there. <laughs> yes. yes. My whole thing is I am actually surprised that you read her in the book as Southern. I just kind of never thought about that. And that's why I was a little surprised that her voice was a little jazzier than I thought. But then once she was back in District 12 and she was very grassroots folk, I was like, okay, okay, this like makes Mm. sense to me. And if we are talking about the music, okay, (laughs) Rachel, I know that Rachel gets a real beating on Twitter every six months. And I have to say, I think she did totally find this movie. She's a great singer, all that great stuff. The thing is, Every time she sang, it felt to me as if Ed Sheeran was in The Hunger Games and he had to sing for his life. And then Mm -hmm. Ryan Murphy was the game maker and said, 
Mama, this is Glee, season seven. Let's go, Will Schuster. That is how I felt when she sings at the reaping, where I was just like, I was yeah. laughing the entire time because it just felt so weird. But the thing is, like, that is part of the source text in the book. Yeah. They do so much singing, but that's also my bias. I hate when people put lyrics in oh, books. I loved it. I hate it. Oh my I God. I love that so much. Yeah. I'm singing. I'm like, I am making up my own tune. I hate to be the guy screaming in the book, in the book, in the book, but I will say a lot of the emotional high spots. In the book uh, are kind of underscored literally right. by music. Yeah. Right. And Sergeant as you Chris. said, Candace, right, they're just lyrics in the book. I thought that the way a lot of it was incorporated was good. It could have been stronger. I think that it could have been a little bit more lyrics forward. Um, but like Rachel Zegler's rendition of The Hanging Tree is haunting. Are you, are you coming to the tree? Where they strung up a man They say murdered three Yeah, she said that, yeah. And then, like, the old there before, I thought they used it brilliantly. I, I wish, again, I wish it could have been a little bit more lyrics forward. There were a few songs that really got lost, like pure like the driven snow yeah the first song that yeah, she yeah, writes yeah. for him yes and they just kind of use it as a throwaway in the movie but generally speaking give me books with music i love it yeah i mean look rachel said on the red carpet lucy gray is a performer forced to fight and katniss is a fighter forced to perform and guess what she ate that she right mm-hmm. she right i also i gotta give suzanne collins credit oh yeah her <laughs> it's so easy to sort of be like and then she sings a song and it melts their hearts but it's like she writes the damn songs and i i give for her so much credit for that because she did the she did the work. I guess my last yeah. question actually is about uh, another song in this movie, which is the Olivia Rodrigo oh. song that rolls over yeah. the closing credits. Because mm-hmm. you have all through the movie, you have Rachel Zegler singing these these songs, like that Suzanne Collins has written the lyrics. Dave Cobb works on the music in this film. You get like really authentic kind of rustic roots music. And then over the closing credits, you have the Oscar song. Right. Let's hear a little bit of Olivia Rodrigo's song, Can't Catch Me Now. I'm here, I'm there, I'm everywhere, baby. All right, what do you guys think of this song? It's fine. You know, I mean, no. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. I mean, talk about a poet. Like, Olivia Rodrigo is a poet like a once-in-a-generation kind of poet. She's our Suzanne Collins. <laughs> I love <Yeah>. O'Rod. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a child of the Space Jam generation, so, like, give me the I believe I can fly in the thick of it. Right. Give Olivia her due, too. I put her someplace where she can actually shine instead of just, like, as people are shuffling out and, like, throwing away stale popcorn. Yeah, I think that's where I come down. I, I, I When I hear a great movie song, I want it integrated into the movie. And I did think the juxtaposition of The Hunger Games and Olivia Rodrigo was one that made a lot of thematic sense. This song was a little bit of a stretch beyond what she's done on her records. Totally, totally. And I will just say this, which is that Stephen, as a prequel... Hater. Hater skepticist. (laughs) I, too, was kind of converted by this film in terms of prequels in our lives. And I will say, if there is a prequel that I want to see from the series... It has to be Hamish, who is played by Woody Harrelson, because Mm -hmm. that boy has gone through so much trauma. And Mm -hmm. I actually wish they had done his story over President Snow, who once (laughs) again, war criminal that they tried to tell me was hot. And I do not like this emotion. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Well, we want to know what you think about The Hunger Games, colon, The Ballad of Songbirds, <laughs> Ampersand Snakes. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what is making us happy this week? Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Dive into the chilling new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, the riveting adaptation of the acclaimed true crime book. Based on shocking true events, Under the Bridge tells the haunting story of a murder that lays bare a small community's darkest secrets. Go deep into the hidden world of the town's tormented teenagers as detectives race to solve the sinister crime. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu. Now it's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Candace Lim, I'm going to start with you. What's making you happy this week, buddy? So I want to dedicate my happy to my king, Glenn Weldon, because <laughs> what's making me happy this week is a song called Hottest Female Up in Whoville by Matt Rogers. Oh, Can we yes. listen to a little bit of it as a little squad here? Please. Mad drippage down my neck, that's my hood jewels. These men are dialing up, acting straight fools. He wants some mother may who? That's why he's not with you. I'm the only hot who up in Whoville. Men. Okay, okay. <laughs> so. As you can tell, there's a little bit of like a Mariah Carey, we belong together, bounce in this. And the song is from Matt Rogers's Christmas album. It's called Have You Heard of Christmas? And you might know Matt as the co-host of Las Culturistas. He has ventured into his recording artist era because this album is just Christmas bops, but it's also like a comedy album. So every Mm -hmm. song has a story that Matt wrote and worked on with his creative partner slash pianist, Henry Kopersky. In this song, the hottest female up in Whoville, (laughs) it refers to Christine Baranski's character in the movie How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And her whole thing is like she's hot. She's messing with the Grinch. And Matt's song is written from her perspective of what it's like to be that girl. Mm -hmm. And Matt builds this narrative that her sexual proclivities have alienated her from making genuine female friendships in Whoville due to the stigma the town has given her due to her work. You know, that is a real issue. Loneliness in Whoville. They don't speak about that. 
But <laughs> I dedicate this to Glenn because one year ago, Matt performed the songs from his album in a Showtime special called Have You Heard of Christmas? Mm-hmm. During that time, Glenn, he checked in with me multiple times, Zoom, <laughs> Facebook, Slack, to see if I had watched it. And without his persistence, we wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. So I salute you. Oh, and it. that is what's making me happy. Hottest Female Up in Whoville by Matt Rogers. Awesome. Thank you, Candace Lim. JC Howard, what's making you happy this week? The thing that's making me happy this week is Goosebumps, the TV series oh. on Disney <laughs> yeah. Plus and Hulu. Yes. Like plenty other millennials, I grew up on Goosebump books, but I feel like most of the film adaptations have seemed kind of cheesy in a way that I thought was lame. I've never seen them, I, I will admit, but that's just what I get from the trailers. So I was kind of skeptical about this new series, but I gave it a chance and I have really been enjoying it, Uh, particularly the first three or four episodes of the season. In each of those, you kind of focus on a different kid from this high school and the sort of monster of the week that they're dealing with, whether it's like a possessed camera or a haunted mask or something like that. Those stories kind of connect and interweave with the stories of the other characters in the other episodes. And by episode four, Five, they're all kind of converging as part of one storyline. And the season is slated for 10 episodes. And the final episode actually comes out today. So I haven't gotten to watch it yet. So I don't know if they're going to stick the landing. But so far, I've really been digging it. So um, again, that's Goosebumps, the TV series on Disney Plus and Hulu. Awesome. Thank you, J.C. Howard. What is making me happy this week is a big music story that NPR Music broke this week. The first album in 17 years from Andre 3000 of Outkast. Mm. And I have absolutely loved watching the the discourse around this very weird album. No Advance Music came out prior to the release of New Blue Sun, which is out today. Mm -hmm. It is an 87-minute album with no rapping and no singing and a whole (laughs) lot of wind instruments. (laughs) Part of what's making me happy is, first of all, this deeply incisive and thoughtful and fascinating interview that Rodney Carmichael did with Andre 3000. You can listen to this 73-minute interview at NPR Music. But part of what is making me happy is just, first of all, the song titles on this album Mm. are so funny and so weird. The first track, uh, which kind of explains the MO of this record, the song is called, I swear I really wanted to make a rap album, but this is literally the way the wind blew me this time. (laughs) But I see a project like this and I just think, man, I love art. Yeah. Mm. I love that there's a new Andre 3000 record. (laughs) I somehow love that it's going to make everyone mad. (laughs) And I'm just, I'm excited about this project and really proud that NPR Music had a hand in telling the world about it. And that is what is making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Candice Lim, J.C. Howard, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fathima and edited by Mike Katzif. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy, and Hello Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Stephen Thompson and we will see you all next week. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR.
Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. 